Hi everyone, welcome to Enterprise Tuesday. I'm Bob Wardrop. I'm going to chair this evening. Um, I'm trying to look to see if I get some familiar faces. I teach in this room, so I'm expecting, of course, to see a bunch of familiar faces. But this is very nice. We're, we're, we're joined here tonight by uh, Scott Button from Unruly. He's going to talk about his exit. But before we get to that, um, I want to introduce Sean Grady from um, AstraZeneca, who's going to take a few minutes to talk about um, basically a science uh, competition, in effect, right, that you have going on that's kicking off today. And Sean is a Vice President of Business Development and Operations at AstraZeneca, and he leads the Transaction Execution Due Diligence Alliance Integration Management Function, including early stage and on-market licensing and partnering, M&A and divestment, so he's busy. Uh, during his career, he's worked in roles for ICI, Zeneca, AstraZeneca, in corporate pharmaceuticals, US legal departments, HR and business development. And his major projects have included the AstraZeneca merger, the creation of Avicia, okay, uh, Sagentia acquisition of CAT, Medumin, Emelin, and the spin out of Alberio. So with that, I'll pass it over to you, please. Thank you. Yeah, I did all of those things single-handedly, <laughs> which explains why I've got gray hair. I'm only 23. Um, no, so thank you, Bob uh, and Scott, for just allowing us uh, five minutes of your time before the proper part of the evening starts to announce the opening of the period for admissions uh, for the AstraZeneca Startup Science Competition, which opened, opened today. Um, so I'm the head of business development in AstraZeneca, so I'm one of the now 2,800 people who've moved to Cambridge over the last four or five years. So we're starting to feel that we've been here for a long time. But of course, compared to the 800 years of um, Cambridge's existence, we're but the blink of an eye. But when we, when we arrived in Cambridge, we didn't actually want to be the big farmer who read out lists of all the great deals you've done before you um, uh, get hold of a microphone. And we thought quite long and hard about how do you, how do you enter a well-established, sophisticated uh, life science and, and fintech and, and other ecosystem, and how do, you, how do you play a proper part in that cluster? And one of the things we hit upon with our friends here from the Judge Business School was actually um, assisting startups and entrepreneurs with coaching and mentoring as an opportunity to be a good neighbor uh, with our new neighbors in Cambridge, to help the startups, but interestingly, additionally, to actually develop AstraZeneca people. Because when you're in a 60,000-person company that operates in 127,000 uh, countries, getting the ability to work with startups on you know, pitching decks, on finance plans, just kind of thinking in a, an entrepreneurial way is actually quite unusual for people like us who work at scale. So we saw benefits to give to the community, but also benefits that we could take back into AstraZeneca and kind of cross-pollinate entrepreneurism into, in, into the company, if that doesn't sound too uh, corporate and, and or pompous. So since, since we've arrived, we've got a, a mentor pool of about 70 people from all different scientific and business and, and other disciplines. And that mentor pool have worked with over 90 startups and entrepreneurs 
mostly in Cambridge, but also you know, further beyond uh, in the UK, and we're doing a similar thing now in Sweden, and we're doing a similar thing, we're just starting a similar thing in China, uh, at Wuxi, and, and potentially in, in Beijing. So from a few conversations uh, here in the business school, this thing's kind of going global, which is both pleasing and worrying uh, in equal measure. So having uh, made coaching and mentoring a key part of our arrival strategy, the next obvious thing to do was to um, have an AstraZeneca-branded uh, uh, startup science uh, competition. So we had the first one last year. Uh, as you'd expect, great success. Uh, attracted some really great uh, entrants. We had three fantastic companies in our final. Calium Diagnostics, you may know, Tanya and, and her team were the winners. And uh, as I've said already, today we are launching uh, version, version two, the, uh, the second year. So applications open today. The uh, closure uh, for, for applications is the 14th of June. A reasonably sized number of companies will be shortlisted to come in to the company and pitch to a, a panel of esteemed judges. The judges are drawn from the company, but also from the business school, from Babraham, from Lucy Cavendish College, uh, from Pitch at the Palace, the elevator platform organization uh, where we help and support the Duke of York's um, entrepreneurial support program. So a, a nice diverse uh, group of judges from which, again, three companies will be selected and, if agreeable, attend to pitch at the final. And the final uh, will be at an event we call AZ Exchange, which is, here again, here at the Business School on the 3rd of July. And there will be probably something in the region of 250 to 300 guests, external guests, at that event which will be the usual fantastic array of angel investors, of VC, of private equity, of big pharma. Uh, you know, the great and the good of, of, of Cambridge and beyond will all be uh, present on the day. So a perfect opportunity to pitch to some of the most uh, influ influential people in the Cambridge Life Science Cluster. So I'm conscious I'm pitching to people about a pitching competition. Um, I hope it hit the mark and would uh, get good votes uh, uh, had it been an entrant uh, into the competition. Um, my colleague David is here with me as well. We're both going to stay for the, no doubt, exciting and um, uh, illuminating evening. And we're, we'll be around later on to, to share a little bit more uh, information. There are some four information forms uh, around and about. But you know, mostly it would be great to talk to a few people if there is interest either in the competition or in working with AZ mentors on any particular topic or aspect of your business. So Bob, that's what great. I had Thank to say. I hope I didn't take up too much time. Perfect. Thank you very much. You can keep that. Thank you. Okay, so um, on to the main event. Scott. So let me just say briefly, I, so I teach here um, New Venture Finance, and I teach two to MBAs and Master Finance students, and also a course called FinTech Strategies, and one called Alternative Channels of Finance. So my space is sort of more FinTech and finance technology than advertising, but I appreciate sort of the technology. Um, 
And I also have been involved in a number of exits as an investor, as a director, personal investor, professional investor over the years. Uh, before really coming into academia about 10 years ago. So I, I straddle the worlds, but I've never done anything that Scott has done not even close, right? So I, I think this will be a really interesting evening. I'm very curious about exits. I've wrestled with a lot of these issues from a perspective other than the founders. So I think this is going to be really valuable. Um, and Scott was a co-founder of Unruly, which is the global video advertising marketplace acquired by News Corp in 2015. That, might, that must have been interesting in itself. Before launching Unruly in 2006, Scott was the CEO of Connextra, which was a venture-backed UK ad-serving firm. Uh, he holds an MA from Cambridge, was over at King's, uh, and a BPhil from Oxford, both in philosophy, useful for the ad business, yep. and uh, previously did short spells. I noticed the short spells in the House of Commons and McKinsey. Uh, and won Ernst & Young's Emerging Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur of the Year Award in June 2002. So um, what I'm going to kick off, I think the way we'll run this that I'm, I'm comfortable with, I think it's more interesting for the audience. I'm going to talk a little bit just to kind of set the context with Scott because I think context is important whenever you're going to start to talk about exits and exit strategies. But very early on, I would encourage you to jump in and start asking questions that you think are interesting and relevant to why you're here. I'm, we're, we're, we're both, we haven't highly structured a big rehearsal and a big scripted thing. I think we're both very comfortable with going fluidly with yep. how the audience would like to take this. And my job is to kind of steer that and kind of help Scott respond so that everybody's really getting something out of this. So I'm just going to, again, start off by talking a little bit about context. I think, Scott, you had started a business back Connextra, right? Yep. Talk a little bit about just the inception of this one, how the founders got together, just to start to set the stage a little bit on some of the dynamics mm -hmm. that fit into kind of the thinking about Exit. So Unruly had um, three co-founders, so there's myself, um, Sarah Wood, who is also my partner in life as well as business. Um, so we saw a lot of each other, and still do. Uh, and then uh, Matt Cook, who was the third co-founder, so he was the CTO of Unruly. Um, and that's someone that I'd worked with at my previous business. So we were both very early employees at the Connextra absolute business that you mentioned, Bob. So we'd known each other for five or six years. At that point, Sarah and I had been married for uh, about 10 years. So we, we, did, we all knew each other sort of very, very well at the, uh, the get-go. Yeah, and you exited that in a form. Talk a little bit about that exit. Oh, so the, uh, the Connextra exit? Yeah. Okay, so, uh, so that, uh, so, I mean, that was small, Beer, but important because I kind of cut my teeth doing that. So, so I wasn't a founder of that business. I was, I was probably employee nine or ten, um, and I ended up running that business. We raised a little bit of capital to get it through a, a difficult period because it was a real kind of classic um, dot-com boom and bust company. It had raised money, like a decent amount of money, on a wing and a prayer had, you know, I remember interviewing there and they had, they had 23 different revenue models, which of course meant they had zero fucking revenue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we managed to turn it into a bit of a business and we did make some money and we exited that um, in 2000, so late 2005. 
largely because we were just keen to kind of move on and do the next thing. So I had a bit of equity from a, a tiny amount of money I put in. Um, well, it was all the money I had at the time, but about £5,000 or something like that, and some options. But that exit got us out about 300k sterling, which was that. Which was real money in those days. In those days. It wasn't that long ago. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's enough, it was enough to see this, basically. Because you often see, you know, and I still get dismayed by this, you see, you see a couple of good founders with a good idea, and they end up having to give away 20, 40% of the company, you know, in the, in, within the first year, when they're really just getting going because they've got no finance whatsoever. So, it, yeah, we, we had, was we, we, as we thought about it, that was to give us two years runway because we weren't paying ourselves. So we basically had three co-founders all in a position, fortunately, and willing and able to work without being uh, remunerated, and then a few hundred K in the bank. So we thought, well, we can probably figure something out in a couple of years. Yeah, so you went into that without necessarily having the big idea. Mm -hmm. You had, as you put it though, you had runway, right? I mean, you, yeah, you, you really cool. bought that flexibility to, to basically buy the independence and the time yeah. to find your way along. Exactly. But you got to a point where you did raise some money. We did, yes. Talk about that. Um, so that was quite a lot later. So we, and really we founded in 2006, and we run off you know, the initial investments, and then we were cash flow positive within two years, which was the plan. Um, and so we did another then three, four years just growing off of cash flow. Um, the raise, we, so we only really did one raise, with, you know, one institutional raise, which was um, beginning of um, 2012. So we'd kind of run for six years by that point. Now we were off, we, you know, we used to get, you know, bore ourselves silly discussing this internally, because you're always thinking, well, shall we raise money, shall we not? Um, it's quite scary, you know, growing a business, because we grew, we grew that business to be quite big. Um, when we raised money, I think we did 17 million sterling that year, and, um, you know, about a mil and a half um, EBITDA. Um, and, I, and when we did that raise, we hired like a professional CFO in, um, and it was just. And I think you often get this dissonance when you start hiring in, you know, like proper finance people. So the dissonance <laughs> was, you know, I would I would go to the ATM and put my cash card in. I remember once there was, I think it was six hundred thousand pounds in our bank account, and I'm like, yes, this is really cool. And the CFO came in and went, oh my god, uh, you know, because he he did his cash flow projections and it's like, you know, you, you know, you, you, you're going to be bust in six months, and we weren't because we just, but we were seat of the pants, and we had maybe, uh, you know, we had enough in the bank usually to cover about three months of opex, you know, which is, you know, not the sort of thing that a CFO's comfortable with and we were wanting so that's one of the reasons that you know there are a few reasons why we wanted to raise money and why we did it then one was because so let's let's keep track so everybody's tracking so how many years in are, are you now six you're six years in were you constrained in growth at all in terms of the self-generated cash flow to grow the business did you guys feel like we could grow faster if we had more cash or what was talk about some of the factors that were feeding into the decision to raise outside yep. money because at that point, right, you're, you're kind of, well, you can talk about the implications of that in more detail. Yeah, so, um, 
I mean, were we constrained? Yes. You're always constrained, even if you after you've raised a bunch of capital, you're still constrained. Um, we, I mean, I think we needed that money to kind of professionalise some areas of the business that we were under-investing in, knowingly under-investing in. I think one of the issues you have as an entrepreneur when you are literally just trying to run the business, you know, by the skin of your teeth and you've got money coming in, money going out. So we really, you know, we were very happy to, to hire software engineers. You know, we're a technology business. That felt like a good investment. Really happy to hire um, salespeople, so they would generate revenue. Was really happy to hire, you know, a, f you know, a few biz dev people who would go and cut deals with that's, media partners. That's revenue. That's a, yeah, also revenue. Um, IT, finance, legal, HR. I mean, you know, they just they don't generate any money. So, <laughs> you know, we had so that the wheels didn't quite fall off, but it was getting pretty close. We we had we you know in. So we six years in, reasonable scale business. I think we had about we had about 60, 70 staff. We had one guy who was doing um, <coughs> finance, HR, legal, and also um, you know the tech infrastructure. I mean, you've got lots of engineers around, but it's like who actually makes sure the phone systems work and like you know the salespeople. So we had literally one guy doing everything. Um, and then he died, and then... <laughs> <laughs> well, it made doing the raise kind of interesting, because they wanted to see like, where all the employment contracts were. Yeah. And we're like, well, they're in that phallic cabinet over there, aren't they? And we're like, mm, somewhere and somewhere. <laughs> so, I think, but, uh, so I think we got... Um, the most helpful thing about raising institutional money um, is the sort of professionalisation. So we had to start running proper board meetings and we had to start documenting stuff. And you know, we did put in place proper HR, proper legal, all that sort of stuff, because otherwise we wouldn't have been able to exit um, yeah. um, three, four years later because it would have just looked like a shit. No, there is this notion being exit ready, yeah. right? It's really important and I think it's one of the first steps that a, an institutional investor will take investing in a business, they'll start thinking about how they're going to get out and what needs to be in place from a due diligence perspective on that ultimate exit. Was that fair? Yeah, no, no, totally fair. And, and probably it's a good reason also for thinking about even if you don't need seed funding. Yeah. So we were just like a bit arrogant and we're like, well, we don't want ABCs on until we absolutely have to. But then, of course, we didn't look very professional when we were going out, you know, so we had a decent-sized business, but, you know, and we ended up getting, you know, like a lot of good offers from the European VC community. I did go out to the US. Nobody was interested because we were just like this weird UK business that no one, you know, there wasn't an institution in it already. They just didn't know what it was going to look like on the inside. And to be fair, it did look messy on the inside, and they didn't want to be dealing with that as a lead investor from, like, you know, 6,000 miles away. So I'm thinking, you know, because you know, we would really have liked um, a, a Valley investor in when we were doing that round, but we just didn't have the credibility, honestly, as a team. And some of that is just like the rubber stamping of, and you know, you, you know, if you've got an institution in, people know the governance is likely okay. It's not a guarantee, but it does increase the probability, yeah. Yeah, and I think that the different institutional investors are operating in different governance 
environments with respect to how their limited partners will look at the fund and you know the liability issues are very different you know if you're running a fund in the United States versus Europe too although that's to some extent globalized but but you also were facing some other issues in terms of of, of raising that round that were motivators can you talk about that more from a personal point of view because you know founders have to have discussions about whether we what do whether we don't you described the business reasons yeah but there's a personal side. Uh, no, absolutely. So, I mean, the, from a personal standpoint, the main reason that we took institutional funding at that phase in our journey was so that we could take a little bit of money um, off of the table. Uh, if we hadn't been able to have done that at the time, we wouldn't have done the round. I mean, honestly, from a person, you know, in terms of motivation, that was the single biggest motivator for doing it. Because, you know, at this point, you know, you're six years in. Um, we've, you know, been working like crazy at this thing. Um, we're still not paying ourselves like market rate um, salaries. All our net worth is tied up in this thing. So the ability to take like a bit of money off the table, you know, really quite important. Because, you know, again, we would talk about, you know, timings of exit because we could have sold the company you know around about that time um, I just thought it was too early and we weren't really being ambitious enough but you know if we, if we weren't going to do that we were going to kind of like you know have another roll of the dice do another three four maybe five years however long it is then at least we could de-risk a bit you know pay off the mortgage not worry about paying, you know, school fees and all that sort of stuff. So that, that, was, that was the primary kind of personal motivation for doing it. How did that discussion emerge among the founders? Because it's an interesting founder dynamic in this case. You've got two people in a romantic relationship. I assume it was still romantic at that point. <laughs> and, and I'm referring to you and Sarah. And, and you have a third. You had Matt. Yeah, in this and, complicated love triangle. <laughs> well, you never know. It's the ad business. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what, what was that, how did that discussion emerge and were you aligned in that? Because it's not, you could make a case, it's not necessarily, you, you're, you're living, you're in different situations, right? Within, within the three of you or not? Well, so Matt was about five years younger than us, but, you know, was married, had kids. And uh, it's not like we kind of like would have a big kind of, sit down power about this stuff we just kind of i think we you know certainly with sarah and i would just communicate like all the time and then with matt you know again you, you just have like quite a lot of touch points honestly um so there was never a big moment where like right okay we need to do this because actually we we're talking about fundraising and primary and second you know we, we we're talking about this like you know every time we would meet up honestly so i think we were you know fortunately quite naturally aligned. We didn't have any big differences of opinion or POV um, on, on that. Um, I mean, Matt, well, yeah. I mean, there, there, you know, there, there have been a number of occasions where he's been sort of ambivalent on a decision, um, but happy for it, you know, to, he, he doesn't, he, he just wants to kind of get his head down and, and, you know, write code and build a team that would build great, software and you know if you it was very rational I mean, if you you know if you, if you say well you know and this is why it's going to be good you'd, you'd kind of get him so there wasn't a lot of emotion uh, around it um, you know there was discussion 
in particular bringing the third co-founder like, along on a decision, it was very you know, ratiocinative. So you're in a partial exit, right? You're taking some money off the table. Mm -hmm. You had a, did you retain an advisor to do that? Did you have a banker doing um, that deal for you? To, uh, yes, yeah, we did. And was it a boutique? I mean, you, and how did you source? Uh, Word of mouth? Yes. Sir. Interview five of them? I mean, what was that process? Because that's really an important relationship. Yeah, so I think I talked to probably about five or six um, different um, you know, investment banks or advisories. Yeah, at that end, they, they're quite boutique. So Torch Partners, who we used, were they did a bit they did a bit of series A fundraising, but they're really more focused on M and A. So we kind of went with someone a bit larger and a bit more experienced because there were plenty of you know very boutique you know firms that are quite small and just do kind of series A fundraising rounds. Yeah, and the series A is different, right? People aren't necessarily taking money off the table in a series A. Uh, Yes, yeah, unusual in the series A. I mean, we, we you know, it's A because it's the first one we did. I mean, it looks, you know, and it has some yeah. of the characteristics of a later round. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And was that an issue taking money off the table? I mean, as a general principle, investors don't like money coming off the table. Um, but you know, they can. But how did you frame that, yeah. or your banker frame that? Um, so we were very upfront about that. Um, uh, it, we probably had it in our use of proceeds, <laughs> uh, but no, we, we were very upfront, uh, and we, we found people, at least superficially, were, were quite open mm -hmm. to that. No one explicitly blew us out over that particular issue. Now, people still blew us out, so you don't know what they're saying, you know, behind closed doors. But I, I was quite surprised actually. That, that, that we got like quite a good reception to that, that most people kind of got it and were like, you know, yeah, we're backing this, we want to do something bigger with this business, so let's not have the founders having sleepless nights about, you know, um, you know paying rent. Yeah, and you still had, if I understand correctly, if I recall, you still owned, the three founders still owned a controlling interest in the business. Oh, uh, correct, yes, yeah. we retained, um, Yes, I think after we'd done that round, yeah, we had like 75%. Yeah, so you got a lot of incentive. And, and we were very um, clear that we wanted to retain board control as well as having um, kind of shareholder control too, which we did manage to achieve. Well, that's a good deal. Um, yes, I mean, in terms of... I don't know the other terms, but, terms you know... Of, I mean, well, in terms of, uh, in, you know... In what you want. ...framing tonight, I mean, yes, we actually got a slight partial exit. Yeah. But with about as much independence as you can get. Now, obviously, you bring in VCs and they've got, you know, these veto rights and there's terms over here, but we had shareholder control and we had board control, um, which I just think, you know, some people will tell you that you don't need board control. I mean, you know, lawyers will often say, ah, you know... You just, it's all by consensus. Well, it's all by consensus until you fall out. It's <laughs> true. Um, so I always, thought, I always thought psychologically for us, it was quite important to know that, you know, if anything ever did go nuclear, we were in a pretty, not, you know, not inviolable, but in a pretty strong um, position. So the period from the partial exit to the exit, what's going on during that period? Um, oh, a lot. So, um, raising money is actually quite easy. 
Um, it's not easy if you have to keep doing it, which is what lots of businesses do. I mean, we were lucky when you had to do it once. So we raised and then could kind of focus on building out the business. Um, but then, you know, then you've got to deploy it, right? Um, so we were already in, I think, about five or six different markets um, at the point at which we raised. So we were already in the US um, and already in a few different European jurisdictions. So really, it was just about turning the gas up. So we turned up the gas like quite a lot on the US in particular, uh, and also on engineering and product. So having the capital, you know, as well as just doing the boring kind of housekeeping stuff of you know making sure people have got employment contracts and you've got you know a functioning HR department, it was really build the engineering team, build that product. So we built a quite a lot of product uh, in that time, and did quite a lot of kind of geographical expansion. Which is, you know, and that, which is why you need all of these kind of core boring functions to actually be, you know, like well, you know, reasonably well oiled, because otherwise things just start blowing up. Yeah. Um, and you know, yeah, I mean, it wasn't plain sailing. Um, you know, it's almost like a law of raising money that your business goes like bam, 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 and as soon as you raise money, you like miss the next quarter. You know, always happens. Happened to us too. <laughs> so you've, how soon did the Let's, you know, let's start talking about exit. When did that conversation start after the 2012 raise? I mean, was this, did this start pretty early? You've now got institutional money in and they're thinking fund return. Yeah. So it, it, it wasn't a broad conversation with the VCs um, over, you know, really very much in the first couple of years, I would say, because um, we just needed to execute and you know when you're trying to scale a business up like that so you know over the next kind of like i guess um three years we scaled from like 60 staff to 250 uh and then when we're in I think about 19 offices that those staff were spread over so you know, it's a major headache so a lot of business complexity um so we, there wasn't much explicit discussion um not until suddenly Probably 2014. Okay, so you're two years post the raise. Yeah. Now you, there's always the expectation, right? I mean, you, you, once you bring you know. additional money in, you know, this probably isn't going to be a you know run it forever and hand it over to the kids business. You know, you you know you really need to create some liquidity, and you know what the you know the kind of life cycle of a VC fund is. So you've kind of got quite clear timelines, and we you know we knew. Um, you know, I think we had three funds come in. Uh, two of them, I think, were investing quite late in terms of their um, the life cycle of the particular funds that they were using to deploy from. So we knew they were going to be like a little bit less patient than more patient. And there were some things built into the terms of the institutional raise that incentivized us to exit or would penalise us for not exiting. <coughs> around sort of 2015-2016. So did you have an IRR hurdle that was a trigger, a ratchet of some kind or uh, without, so I'm sure it's private and all that, but just give us some idea of, of what that mechanism might have been. Um, so yeah, effectively, so there was, well there's two things. So um, there was, a, it was, it was, it was quite a strange. The terms were quite strange. I mean, there, there weren't sort of standard US VC terms. So, on day one, there was no participating pref. 
but, uh, but participating pref did accumulate a little bit I see. over the time period. So the, 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 kind of, the longer we went to exit, yeah. the more participating pref yeah. there would be for the VCs. And then there was another, there was actually like a small dividend cash kicker that kicked in about four years, I think after four years. So there's kind of, there's, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of carrot and there's a bit of stick actually. So they, they, you know, so you think it's sensible, they made it kind of like really, really super clear what sort of time frame they, they would like to see liquidity within. Yeah, so that participating prep, do people know what that is, by the way, as an instrument? So you can have different share classes. I think this is worth knowing because there's actually different kinds of prep shares, right? Yeah. Participating prep is a particular type of a preference share that gives you the right as if you had converted that preference share into a common share to share the proceeds of being a common shareholder at exit, plus you get the repayment of the preference share value, and it has usually a dividend associated with it that compounds. Yeah. And so pretty quickly, you know, your indebtedness to pay that dividend increases on a compound rate over time. So that was some of the time pressure. That was some of the time pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and these are mechanisms that investors will use, right, to drive the return uh, that does create, a, to some extent, some short-termism potentially in terms of when you want to exit. Because otherwise, the, the common shareholders are giving more and more to the PREF, to the money that came in, yep. in a compounded sense. And those, comp depending on what your rate was, whether it was 8 or 10 or 12, but it's not usually 3% compounding, okay? They're usually pretty aggressive. Yeah, it's material. It's material. Yeah. You know, I mean, a, a standard, you know, kind of participating pref, you know, like a US, US VC, it would just be like 1x up yeah. front, right? So they put in 10 mil, whatever you, you know, if you exit. Liquidation preference, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, if you exit for 10 mil, guess what? Only they get their money back because they get the 10 mil back before anything else gets dibbled out. So it wasn't, you know, so yeah. it was much friendlier than that, but there was, there was clearly a ticking clock. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't force our hand but it, it's, 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 it's clarifying, isn't it? And then, you know, the, then, you know, the other key, kind of key thing to talk about from an exit timing standpoint is, is really your, um, you know, your kind of your market timing, like where your, your kind of product sits against market and competitive landscape. Because the, uh, I mean, it might sound stupid, but the kind of the, the uh, sort of the technology behind, behind advertising has changed very rapidly and very chaotically over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and although it's possible to describe kind of Unruly's product and its journey as being a kind of very smooth, continuous transition or evolution, we really had to reinvent that business kind of twice. There were probably three distinct phases of it. And those, you know, the, 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 even, you know, the business model of each of those phases looked quite different. So, you know, we, you know, we could have exited around the time we did our institutional raise, 2011, 2012. We had a great business at that point. It was going all out um, and there was quite a lot of excitement and frost in the market and some of our competitors got bought out. That would have been a good time to exit. We didn't, we raised um, and then actually, a lot of dynamics in the market shifted, um, and you know, we can go into detail or not. You know, it might bore people a bit the, the nuts and bolts of it, but we had to reinvent that business, and we kind of knew that, you know, it was going to be 
probably three or four years before we'd have a moment again when our you know, kind of product market fit looked sexy and you're kind of you know, the right point on the hype cycle and all this kind of you know, stuff. It's all kind of true and real, but yeah, you're, you know, you're, it's, it's like surfing. I mean, you just, you know, you've got to, you, you t you kind of, you know, you're waiting for the wave, right? And your timing on this stuff is really critical. Um, and so I think you know, we did manage to time our final exit you know, quite well. So again, if we'd waited a couple of years beyond that, it, you know, we again went into another phase of business reinvention uh, yeah, because advertising was becoming like much more thoroughly um, 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 kind of you know kind of computer centric in terms of how the actual you know trading mechanics, uh, the buying and selling of advertising. Yeah, I like that analogy of the of the wave surfing and catching the next wave. And there's two aspects to that. One one would be um, investment in driving an, a return on the investment required to do almost a rebuild. Yeah. Right. So you got to get your ROI if you're going to make that investment to transition. But the other one is more the business model shift and the uncertainty of pulling it off. Yeah. How would you weight those two? Because you know, how did you see that? Was it was it a was it the financial risk or was it the business model risk? Where you guys essentially, it sounds like what you said is, boy, do we want to go into this again? So uh, I, I think so I think the the uncertainty risk is much higher um, and, and you know, more difficult and it's like the driving factor here rather than around, because your uncertainty levels are so high that you know, any model that you build out, like you know, your three-year plan, your five-year plan, I mean, it's, it's just BS, yeah? You can build one, you can build five, you can make it say whatever you want to say, you know how easy it is to, you know, three assumptions on the you know, assumptions page and your Excel, like, woo. Um, so you can always make, you know, and, you know, and I know this post-acquisition as well, going through budgetary processes with a, you know, a corporate parent, you can always make the, your, your spreadsheet do what it needs to do. Um, but, you know, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, I know that, you know, your uncertainty is so great that you know even if you've got models going here and here, you know you could still be under your worst case and you could still be above your best case, and you know you're still frequently facing um, you know issues that are existentially threatening to the business. Yeah. So I'm conscious that we've been talking for half an hour, and I've got lots of questions because we're now going into this the, the final exit phase. But I'd really encourage anybody that's got any questions, if you want to start asking questions now, from here on in, you know, feel free. Because I think we've got you know, the base of this sort of bedded down a bit. We've got questions. OK, please. Uh, yeah, I'm curious as to the valuation method, uh, not, not the number, but the methodology that was used in the first, in the first round, mm. where, where you had a, a profitable business yeah. with, a, with a quite a good revenue. And how, did, how, did, how did that com conversation Evolve. Um, so at the time, businesses in our kind of like in our domain were typically valued off of um, either revenue or gross profit, ra rather than off bottom line. Because we were actually extremely unusual in the fact that we were turning profit. Most businesses in the advertising space, you know, then you know, and it's you know. Uh, 
you know, absenting Google and Facebook, it's still the case now. You know, there were lots of businesses that were growing quickly but not making any money. And then you know, the question is, well, you know, you know, at what point do you and can you? And if you hit a certain point of scale, can that profitability start looking quite good? So we were profitable, but we weren't really re we weren't valued off of our EBITDA. And of course, as soon as you, it's one of the things I, you know, I still find a bit weird. You raise some money, you know, if you're going to, you know, if you, you know, unless you've got capital projects, and very few technology startups really have capital projects, the only way you can deploy that money is by going unprofitable, um, you know, for a period of time, and then you kind of got to, you know, um, come back out of it. Um, so anyway, multiple of, uh, chiefly as a multiple of revenue, although some people would think about that. Yeah, as, a, as, a re as a multiple gross profit, which is probably a more sensible metric than a pure revenue-based one. So we're coming up to, uh, yep, please. You talked about sort of redoing the tech twice. So what was the intrinsic value of the business? Was it the contact list or just knowing the industry or what? Um, so, you know, I think when you, you know, and, and, and kind of moving, jumping forward a little bit and, and thinking about, you know, what was the intrinsic value to news when they acquired us, um, you know, it's, it's, it's actually relatively soft stuff, like, you know, know-how. So, you know, we had at that time, you know, 250 people um, spread across a bunch of territories. We probably had one of the most sophisticated like digital ad sales um, teams you know out, again you know facebook's was where are we now yeah facebook's very sophisticated google's very sophisticated but you know outside of them you know we had we had really really good teams um and some really interesting kind of like you know tool sets as well that were kind of built into our you know, you core product offering um in tech is often like a little bit boring. You just got to have like the right features and the right features. And then, well, what's the interesting stuff that you're doing beyond that? Um, and we were doing some like you know at the time really quite interesting things around um, testing long form branded video content and um, looking at emotional response to that and creative testing and yeah, you know, lots of like nice little um, kind of uh, nuggets that we had from a sales standpoint. So you know, lots and lots of know how, you know. Yes, there was a technology platform there that we had built out over you know ten years. It had been iterated a number of times. Um, how much intrinsic value you can put on that kind of stuff? Because you have to re you know you have to keep moving so fast. If you stop developing, that value dissipates in you know in our industry over twelve to twenty four months probably. Um, so you know the stuff there that you need. Um, but it wouldn't have lasting value without the kind of the, you know, the, all the ecosystem of the people around it, if that's helpful. Jeremy. Thank you. A really helpful talk. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Scott Bob. Um, might be part two of the talk, so I, I might be jumping with the questions, actually. Um, you mentioned, so, you know, current valuation based on multiples. Presumably the exit valuation was not based on multiples. Is that a fair assumption or not? Um, no, I, well, most of the discussion and negotiation at the point at which we were selling to news was still around revenue and gross profit multiples, okay. actually. Um, 
he, he, you know, I think even Rupert, who, you know, is not really one for revenue multiples, um, but he had a number in his head, and the number in his head was a re was, was some particular multiple of, of revenue. Because <laughs> um, we were still, you know, we were kind of like borderline break-even uh, at the point at which they acquired us. So we kind of, we were profitable, we'd taken a bunch of investment, we'd gone into investment mode, we're just kind of coming back out of that. We're pretty much break-even and just edging into profitability at the point at which the acquisition happened. But so you can only really do it off of the, um, you know, the, the, you know, the only meaningful metrics you've really got that financially is the, you know, the, the revenue or gross profit, however you want to look at that, and the kind of the growth rates and trajectory of that. So, you know, we did have to submit quite detailed, I think, five-year plans, probably. Um, showing our profitability post-ACK, um, but it, it wasn't done on, you know, EBITDA or, um, or any form of kind of asset valuation. It was really just off of a revenue multiple, and that's what, we, that's what we were arguing about. You know, they had a low one and we had a high one, and we ended up somewhere in the middle. <laughs> now, this is interesting because this is Sean's world, would, would, would look at whether something is accretive or dilutive to some extent. But Sean, in your world, this would be relatively small in News Corp terms, right? Yes. But were they still looking at accretive versus dilutive and trying to get their head around whether the synergies, what the synergies were going to do in terms of making this accretive? Or was it just rationalized strategically think, where it's not? I think it was too small in, in terms of, you know, in, in like the scale they had. It was, I think, you know, I think deemed immaterial um, from a share price um, yeah. standpoint. Because so, so, I mean, you know, at the time, so you had News Corp. So News Corp had had all of their newspapers, all of their content behind paywalls, right? And with some of their titles that had worked quite well, uh, and some of the titles that had worked less well. So the point at which they were doing the acquisition of Unruly was one where they were just about to take some of their titles out mm. from behind the paywalls. Now what that meant was, you know, they had spent three years, five years, whatever, whilst, you know, the digital ad economy was kind of doing things where they just hadn't built out any sort of capability really at all around digital ad sales. So, you know, that, that's kind of, that, you know, there was a clear strategic imperative. They were just going to launch, you know, like, so New York Post, The Sun, they had a few other businesses, but quite, you know, they, had, they were going to like put them into public domain, take the paywalls down, suddenly they were going to be like, you know, they were going to grow these big audiences through search and social, and then, you know, they would need to build out quite a big, uh, strong, um, you know, kind of exec executional function around, uh, you know, ad sales, ad management, and the kind of the tech stack that underpins that. So, you know, the, the, there was something that they really didn't have, and, in, in, and yeah, that's why I say, you know, a lot of it is about know-how. You know, we injected quite a lot of know-how in, in, into, that, into that company at that time. Okay, so your, is that a question? No. So you, you're, you're two years before, you're, this, you sense we're on a wave. Yeah. We're really right, this wave is, is cresting. Yeah. And we're gonna face a challenging decision about possibly business model shift and certainly investment at some point in the not too distant future. Mm. And this focuses really the discussion between you and whoever else is on the board about should we be looking to exit here? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, it, it is. And I think, 
you know, I'm, I'm saying, you know, because whilst the terms of the institutional deal, uh, you know, give you the sound of a ticking clock in the background, that's quite clear, you know, that wasn't really the driver. If we, as the founders, had thought, you know, mm -hmm. wow, we should do another raise, we should shoot for here, um, we would have done that. You know, we were all. You know, you, you're constantly taking risks, and you're constantly taking often quite stupid risks as an entrepreneur, and are constantly overconfident. But I think you know what we saw really very clearly um, was the, the 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 sort of the increasingly dominant position that Google and Facebook were taking in the market. Um, I think you know, it, it took quite a lot of people quite a long time to realise what was going on there. And maybe people even now don't quite realise. But you know, so Google and Facebook between them take 70-80% of um, digital ad revenue. They take virtually everything. Every year that the economy around digital advertising grows, you know, say it's probably growing about 15% at the moment, their growth rate will be 20. Which means that they're sucking up every single dollar of growth and everybody else is in decline yeah. um, and so yeah. you know as a small indie we thought we really really needed to align with um you know a, a large media um company didn't have to be news but we just wanted to have more power on our supply side because what we were selling is you know is inventory and we wanted someone that owned a lot of inventory if we didn't own any inventory we we're just selling other people's and it's a constant dance of business development and contracts and sales agreements and yada 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 so we were pretty clear that we should you know we needed to have more power on the supply side and to be part of someone that was a, a, you know bigger and of course news corp still looks very small oh. compared to um, you know facebook and google it's been really interesting it's one of the reasons it's worked as well because you know we were quite underdoggy and you know you, you you join a large corporate after acquisition but you're still you know you're still with the underdog and they do have kind of quite good you know scrappy underdog spirit which i quite like yeah and i mean th this whole thing of the uh, if you want to see a brilliant analysis of the advertising market there was a Competition in Digital Markets report just done by the UK government. I think it's called the Hutton. But somebody here at Cambridge was a, you know, fun of, and they actually have a brilliant graph. It I think it came out about a month ago, of showing the share in the advertising UK advertising market, yeah. and you see these blocks, and you just see Google and Facebook and these other little and tiny. Yeah, and there's basically there's nothing yeah, else really. It's extraordinary. To that. You know, and that's but you spotted that, right? You saw that coming, that train coming. Yeah. Yeah, well, we got, uh, yeah, we were quite sensitised to it because, uh, you know, G Google caused us quite a lot of pain. Uh, um, you know, so, you know, they, you know, they had, you know, they did try to kill our business in the, you know, um, sort of mid-teens. So it's one of the things that made our post um, institutional investment quite tough um, it, because Google, um, well, YouTube, um, really um, came after us like really very, very, very aggressively. Um, and we had to dance around, pivot a bit to kind of sidestep that sort of onslaught. So, you know, we knew how, we knew, you know, we knew how like really, really ruthlessly aggressive they were. And we saw similar things with Facebook as well. You know, they'll bring you in and they'll whine you and they'll dine you and they'll want to talk partnership. 
but really they just want to kill you. You know, and we've seen this. You know, and, yeah, you know, yeah. It's the movies played out over, yeah. You know, because uh, the sort, you know, if you're, you know, if you're News Corp and you've got all these titles, you know, for various reasons around social and social, you know, you can't really afford not to ally with these people. But yeah, yeah, they're really not your friends. <laughs> yeah, we had a question, right? Please, right here first. Yeah, interesting market. Yeah, very, very concentrated. Yeah. Hi, thank you for that. Um, at the time of founding, did you and your co-founders have any clear idea of a timeline and exit, or would you have kept on surfing that way if hadn't it been for Facebook and, and Google? Um, was it always, was it ever, for example, an idea that you might, like you say, create a kind of company that you would pass on to your, to your children, or did that never even, never even come on the app? Um, no, we did. We were, we were kind of, at the very outset, we were quite open around um, these questions. And in fact, if you had asked me at about around the time of founding, you'd have found me quite allergic to the idea of taking external investment and to um, exiting. You know, just largely for emotional reasons, I'd just done one exit with my previous business. Exiting a business is really, really horribly painful. Not because you're, you know, um, letting your baby go into the world. I mean, people think that, but I mean, no, it's, it's just the, the, the sheer amount of, you know, it's so much hard work. It's so much negotiation. Everyone you thought was this, you know, it's very, very lonely. Um, everyone you thought was on side suddenly is on their own. You know, everyone has their agendas. And I just, uh, you know, and it was a really small acquisition. It was only like, you know, it's a couple of mil. And, you know, but I didn't have much support. We had a you know, small law firm from, I don't know, Banbury or something working on it. Didn't have a banker. And, you know, there are just moments when it gets really heated. Um, and this is where it's quite useful to have, you know, good advisors mm -hmm. who can intermediate a bit, whether that's, you know, the, you know, NEDs on the board, whether it's advisory banks, because there just, just are moments when you're kind of locked in the heat of it. And you know, people, you know, tempers fray, things get said that you know are quite hard to forget. So yeah, I just, I just had just done a small exit, but I thought, oh god, that was really hard. So I was like, no, never doing that again. We're just going like, to build a forever company, and then we can pass it on to the kids. Um, but anyway, but we also didn't know what company we were building when we started out. We just like, yeah, we, you know, we we just done one thing but we didn't found it so we didn't really quite have the whole entrepreneurial journey we knew we, we thought we could do that we knew we wanted to do that so we we're just like okay we're going to do it and we'll kind of figure out what we're doing on, on the way and so the same thing really is true around the exit and investment stuff too we were just constantly kind of feeling our way and a lot of it is around is around timing you know we'd we'd had lots of you know we had investment offers before we went to raise institutional we just didn't think they looked you know that good or the timing wasn't quite right for us. Yeah. I'm keeping an eye out for hands. Uh, yes, at the back, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm just trying to find out, people say, do what you're passionate about. Do the business you're passionate about. If you're passionate about anything, you would not want to let go of it. So how does that square up if you really started Uber? And now you see Uber growing to a multinational company, mm. and then you want to float Uber and sell it, and not get trapped in the same quagmire that Steve Grob, Steve Jobs found himself when he got Appleized out of Apple. 
yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, actually. So, I mean, so you know, a couple of answers to that. So, you know, so while I say we didn't really know what we wanted to do, what I mean by that is we were trying to eschew this idea of having like one big idea, because I kind of, you know, anyone knows from you know reading literature around founders that people do something and it fails, and then they do another thing and it fails, and then they iterate a bit, and you know, eventually on kind of like number six or seven, you've got something that might be viable. So we kind of knew that, so we didn't want to like ally ourselves to like one big idea. We thought, well, but yeah, but the, you know, the thing that we were really interested and kind of passionate about was you know, the, the early internet, you know, the internet uh, and its impact on culture from, you know, kind of 2000 through, you know, the late noughties, it was just really exciting. And it was, you know, the area pre-Facebook, pre-social media, you know, so I've seen it get referred to a bit as kind of like the indie web. So it's like, you know, anyone with a bit of nous could publish, could curate. It hadn't been made easy enough that, you know, your mum and your daughter could do it. But, you know, but there was this, so this kind of like explosion of interesting content being put out there by anyone, you know, who, who felt like it, you know, at almost no cost. But, you know, that was tremendously exciting. But, and this is the reason I mention it, you know, that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, the kind of, the, you know, the phase of the internet that happened, you know, from kind of 2005, 2006, so, you know, what gets called Web 2.0 was very exciting, was very empowering. It democratised lots of these tools. It's much easier to, you know, post on Facebook than it is to set up a blog on movable type, right? Um, but all of that got co-opted by very, very, very large platforms and companies. So the sort of the independent spirit had kind of, you know, I think from the, you know, so the, the, the web that I kind of knew and loved of the early noughties doesn't really exist anymore. So that's one answer to your question. Well, like, you're passionate about this, how do you let it go? You know, circumstances change, right? The sort of company that we exited looks very, very different to the company that we started. You know, when we started, it was really around you know, the an analytics around the social diffusion of content, looking how memes and videos and ideas disseminate across culture, and particularly internet subculture. The business that we sold was, um, you know, very, very interesting business, but totally different. It was, um, you know, um, it's machines to machines, you know, lots of machine learning. It's, you know, much less about culture and much more about efficient um, trading and trading algorithms. So, you know, we ended up in a, in a completely different place. Uh, you know, also, you know, 10 years, you know, 12 years, including the postdoc period, you know, it's a hell of a long time. Um, you know, my problem was always the opposite, yeah? I'll do something, see it's kind of good enough, and I actually don't want to carry it on. I want to kind of just let someone else do that and do the next thing. So I was one of those entrepreneurs that, you know, probably caused some harm inside the business, because I was always, like, wanting to, like, I always, like, had skunk works projects going on, because I wanted to, like, the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And they usually wouldn't come to very much, because they wouldn't look that exciting. Because we actually, had, you know, by the time you've got a business doing about 50 million turnover, your skunk works projects are really hard to make them look, you know, exciting enough on a three-year timeline to be worth investing in. Um, but, no, I, I kind of, I, my, my, my MO is always to kind of want to um, move on. So my, my struggle, honestly, was to kind of stay with the growing business and acquire 
some of the patience and discipline um, that it requires to, to manage um, large, larger teams of people. So you were mildly subversive within your own enterprise. <laughs> From My, time to time. Mildly is probably putting it too mildly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty healthy, actually. So it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do any harm. It doesn't do any harm. So you're obviously you've got other people who can, um, you know, restrain. It were better. Who can keep it, keep the trains running. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're there two years before the board. Everyone's realized you're on the crest. Now you have to start a process, right? Boards make a decision and say. We or how did that evolve? We didn't really was less classic than that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'll just give you the kind of like, you know, the... Um, the real story. The, un the uncolored on this. So, um, it's quite hard to run a process. So, you know, so you can run a sale process, right? But if you're wanting to exit a business, you never want to run a sale process. You know, sale process like, you know... Yeah, maybe if you're larger, you can do it. If you're small and a bit under the radar, it just looks like you're waving a white flag. Mm. So most bankers will say, you know, you never want to sell a company. You want someone to come along and buy your company. Um, and there are various kind of tactics and techniques for trying to drum up interested partners um, whilst looking like you're resolutely not for sale. Um, we weren't, you know, and, and usually they end up being people that you have, you know, reasonably large, large um, kind of, um, you know, business relationships. You've done some business with them before, so they get to know you. Um, I mean, we weren't terrifically good at this. I mean, honestly, what would happen is about every, from about, I don't know, late 2013, about every six months, I'd, I'd try and, you know, like, like, like we'd kickstart a project, which would be like Project X, and it would be coming in on a Saturday morning, and we'd try and, like, you know, what are we doing around exit planning? Because we didn't, you know, the VCs weren't really... Really Project X? Really, oh, somewhere <laughs> I can't reveal its true name. Um, the VCs weren't really kicking us down this direction very hard. Um, then, you know, they would talk about it. They would talk, you know, evenly about either, you know, exit through trade sale or IPOing. But, you know, we were always too, I mean, lots of people asked us to do IPO, but I mean, I thought we were far, far, far too small to IPO and didn't hold much attraction for me. Um, anyway, so, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, we, you know, we did do the sort of right stuff. You go out and you, you know, you try and form you know, strategic partnerships with the right sorts of people. It's tricky because the, um, you know, in some fields maybe there's a handful of strategic acquirers and it's really obvious. In our field, so, yeah, the media companies were fairly obvious. I mean, in fact, the Googles and the Facebooks and, you know, the Apples and so forth, they, 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 they don't do that many big deals, honestly, and certainly not around advertising, which is where they already have core competence. So, you know, big in independent media companies, uh, TV companies, um, um, telecoms operators. Um, no one really believed me at the time. But you have seen telecom operators, for right, you know, for, for right or wrong, move into the advertising space and do some. Well, you know, uh, AT&T is a good example with AOL and yeah, yeah. Right, those are really big acquisitions. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of companies. So you just, you know, the, the bottom line is you just, yeah. You know, the right answer is you just have to put yourself out there a lot. Um, and build profile, and you just have to get lucky, yeah? You know, so, you know, Sarah was, you know, incredibly good at kind of building the company's profile um, and, you know, building our connectivity. Uh, and the news call conversation came off the back of a conference she was at. 
you know, so she didn't bump into Rupert, you know, that's not how it worked. She bumped into, uh, you know, I think their chief data scientist, uh, and they got on really well. Um, and then she mentioned to, you know, Rebecca and a couple of other people. And it still took a few months, you know, even from then, to go from, like, initial contact to um, a serious conversation. I think it took about three or four months. But, you know, we just got lucky. That particular conversation, that particular conference, kind of led to something. And then, you know, it's uh, you know, at this level as well, it's as much, and, you know, this type of deal where it's a, you know, as much people know how as it is tech, you know, so much of it is just around chemistry, really. Do you get on with these people? Could you work with them? Can they work with you? Yeah. So, we got, so that's kind of how we, we got there. But, yeah, a, a little bit organically, I would say. Question right there. Just following on from that, did News Corp know they were looking for you when you um, when when they met at that conference? They, so they were looking um, for um, yeah an, an advertising you know, digital advertising company. Yes. Um, they were, you know, they were especially looking in the UK. They were looking more actually in the in, in, in the US. Um, but, but yes, um, they were. Um, and the you know the the investment bank that we went to for assistance with the sale, which was Lima Partners, which is a New York-based bank, did actually have a live brief from News Corp at the time to be looking for companies. Now, they weren't actually engaged, so they could do us and they weren't conflicted. Um, but yeah, so they, 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 they were looking and they were, act yeah, and they were active, which I think you know, is kind of necessary. Again, you know, I think I was a bit naive. You, know, you, you think you can just, you know, you go and knock on the doors of everyone in Corp Dev. Um, you know, and eventually you find someone with the right strategic imperative. But, it, it, you know, the key, key thing is the exec sponsor, right? So we had two exec sponsors. We had uh, Rebecca Brooks, who was running News UK at the time. She was, well, actually, she wasn't. She was just about to come back. Yeah. Um, and Paul Cheeseborough, who was the, um, the company's CTO. So, they, you know, so there, were, there were two exec sponsors. They were, you know, they wanted to do a deal. There was a corp dev team in New York that was also looking at targets and triaging stuff. Um, I mean, honestly, that made it more difficult mm -hmm. in the end mm -hmm. because there was a bit of tension between London and New York and the New York team. The basics thought, why the fuck are we buying a British company? Um, you know, with all of the ad tech companies in New York and in the Valley, why the hell are we doing this? So there was a bit of tension around that. Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, Sean, you, we were talking before we came in. You know, you've, you've got a list, right? Most firms would be tracking the landscape and they're beginning to evolve where, you know, what's interesting, what's emerging, what might we need? So there's a tracking activity, you know, going on. That's why it was interesting in terms of this first conversation at the conference. What was that conversation with Sarah? I mean, there must have been some signal some, something in that conversation actually triggered an interaction that led to the acquisition. Do you remember what that conversation actually was? It couldn't have been just, you know, let's have lunch sometime. I mean, there had to have been some catalyst in that brief encounter, some trigger that got it onto the radar screen that that's a potential acquisition or maybe, or you know what I mean? 
So, I mean, that conversation was around um, was around data, around you know ad advertising data. We were doing some quite interesting things in the space around uh, you know, sort of emotional and psychological profiling, mm -hmm. which is bad rap these days. But um, but we were kind of quite early in that. But it is News Corp now. Um, um, and I think you know, I mean, I think I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I so they were intrigued. I can only speak from my own experience. But you know, I've, I've always found this stuff quite organic. I think the message that goes up the chain there is that these are good people. You know, so that was one meet. Then there were some others. Uh, I met quite a few people at sort of VP and SVP level in New York, and I don't think they were particularly kicking our tires at the time. Because you know the New York team had its, you know, they're kind of a bit more fixated on the valley. Um, but you know, you meet people, you impress people, they think you're good. They kind of go, yeah, these guys are, you know, are, are, are worth having a, you know, a bit of a chat with. But I think it's as much that as. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I don't, yeah, because I don't think we were like on a kind of like blipping radar. No, they weren't tracking us over, um, over over time. I think it was just a period when our name bubbled up quite a bit. From a few different sources, and so we kind of and that got us onto um, the radar. But then it, it quite quickly became an acquisition. Well, it, it quite quickly became, you know, an investment discussion. You know, um, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't have to have been um, an, an outright um, an outright purchase. But you know, investment and you know, talks of. Uh, you know, strategic investment is often really just code for saying, yeah, we're kind of interested in buying you. Yeah, it's interesting because a traditional, say, a, a VC structure or a PE particularly, where they own a very large proportion of the business, a PE player, for example, I mean, there'll be a sale process, right? There's been no embarrassment about the fact you're selling because everybody knows funds have to sell. So it's a different, the signaling isn't the same as when you're a owner-dominated business, I suspect. You know, board will say, okay, let's start a process, let's put a book together. I mean, everybody likes the serendipitous, we'd like to be approached. Yeah. But funds at some point do have to sell, right? No, totally. But you know, so it's a little bit different in but your it's, case. It's just, uh, yeah, the signaling, I think, is actually is quite mm. tricky. Because mm. um, again, you know, so we're like a few hundred staff, we were about like 40, 50 million turnover when they bought us. You know, so, so quite small. The founding team is quite important. Most acquirers want to keep the founding team. If you look like you're trying to sell, mm. you don't look like you're the sort of people who are going to stick around, do mm. you? So, you know, mm. all the messaging you want to be giving is we don't want to sell, but we do think that maybe strategically this would make some sense and we can use this as a bigger platform to do you know, cooler shit. You know, that's your messaging, basically, isn't it? So they're like, okay, okay, good, good, good. So they will stick around. Because that's, that's what they're terrified about. And most of the trickiest sticking points during the negotiation was just their fear that the, you know, they'd put, you know, the remit funds on completion and we would run for the hills. You know, they're just absolutely terrified um, of that. And every corporate will have had examples where you know, that has happened or, you know, bad things have happened post-ARC. I mean, there was a lot of... I mean, you know, the other interesting thing with news is, I mean, they don't do many acquisitions. Um, I mean, the biggest one they did was Realtor in the US, and that was quite a big one. But, I mean, the, you know, the, the big digital acquisition they had done, of course, was MySpace. And although that was a long time ago, um, there was quite a lot of scar tissue mm -hmm. um, around that. 
Um, you know, obviously it wasn't as big as that, but it was big enough to make everyone remember that and start going, oh, and you know, we can't afford to have that happen again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Questions, please. One back there again. Fascinating talk, Scott. Um, probably quite sensitive, so you know, obviously don't. don't um, in terms of, you know, you had to stay around for a few years, there's a few restrictive covenants, presumably. I mean, how, how did that look, so to speak? Was it, uh, well, I guess you understand the question, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, uh, roughly half of the consideration was up front, and yeah, roughly half then was um, deferred over a period of yeah, about two and a half, three years. So, you know, there's a structure created there that gives you quite a strong incentive to stick around and quite a strong incentive to, you know, hit certain financial targets um, so that you can um, get paid. Um, I mean, yeah, one of the things that we needed to do um, in terms of the exit, and I can't, you know, again, this is kind of good to know because I hadn't really, again, this is the first proper like institutionally backed exit had really done. The first one was too small to, 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 to really factor. Um, so when you've got deferred compensation, consideration, and there's, there's you know, an earn out and there's targets and yada yada, so of course the VCs do not want to be in that. And yeah. news, you know, the News Corps deal team had made it very clear from the get go that they did not want um, the VCs being part of the earn out. So we had to, and this is one of the things that, you know, that I thought you know, makes, makes this sort of transaction difficult because you're not just agreeing terms with your, um, with your acquirer, you also then have got this like, really major side negotiation with the VCs that you've then got to deal with too. So we effectively, and I'm sure this is very, very common, it was just the first time I had experienced it, effectively had to buy them um, um, out of the earnout. So on the day of completion, they got all of their money. Um, in, they took a haircut on the deferred in order to be able to just walk away and they were done. Um, and then the, you know, the rest of us were, you know, particularly the three founders, you know, we had our, you know, we really had to do our three years. So we did less well than the VCs, like considerably less well on the initial consideration. So we had much more riding um, on, on, on the deferred, and they, they had nothing <laughs> writing on it, but we had, we had a lot. So hopefully that is some way to um, answering your question there. Hi, I was wondering, um, during the investment round and then later in the exit process, yeah. to what extent do you keep your employees informed and what considerations do you have? Um, so the so the investment round, yeah. So I think we, we told so the investment round we told people quite early. I mean, generally our, our, our you know our kind of culture and style of communication the company was quite open. Um, so I think we let you know kind of you know, we we would have um, we do all hands like about once a quarter. And then we'd have a big annual get together like, with everyone in the same physical location. So I think we let people know, yeah, in the summer of 2011, that I think by that time we'd retained an investment bank to work on the fundraising. But it was about six months before we actually did it. So we let, we let people know quite early 
Um, the sale process. So that was tricky, actually, for a number of reasons. Um, so, you, so we didn't let um, um, the company, you know, all employees, know about the News Corp deal until quite late in the day, uh, until about two or three weeks before we announced it. Um, main reason being there, you had quite a lot of pressure to um, avoid uh, leaks, and news were kind of quite paranoid about that. Um, and in fact, letting our, all, all of our employees know about, you know, the M&A that's about to happen, kind of three weeks before announcement, is quite unusual. Now, we actually had to do it because we had, we had so many um, employee shareholders um, oh. and employee option holders. Um, and this is one of the things the New York team, the deal team, were just totally freaked out about. Um, <laughs> so, so the equity structure, so, you know, uh, basically the VCs had about 25%, the founders had 50%, the other 25% was, was management and staff. Um, and we had quite a lot of people, you know, when they left, they would exercise their options and buy them. So they're actually, you know, not just option holders, but full-on shareholders in the business. So we had, um, I think, of our 250 staff, 190 were option holders or shareholders. Um, and so we knew that we would have to get written um, consents and paperwork off them in the sort of two to three weeks between announcing the deal and, and actually getting completion, which we did do. The New York team never thought we would do it. But that but that's, that's explains why we kind of basically, about three weeks beforehand, we kind of had to do an all-hand and say, you know, uh, you know. At which point, no one was remotely surprised, because you can't really keep these things secret. So you've got this dissonance where the party line is, you know, but you've got, you know, news call folks coming in and out of the office. <laughs> and then, you know, why, and then, you know, Rupert rocks up. Why the hell is Rupert in the boardroom <laughs> talking to the founders? Oh, well, we're just trying to do, you know, like a really important deal. Um, you know, so it, it, it's a bit of an open secret, I think, in those um, environments. But we didn't have any leaks, uh, either pre-announcement or between announcement and completion. And we did manage to get oh, 190 employee shareholders to all sign various things, which was a nightmare. Um, I don't know. I'll, you know, I, it had always been a really big thing, and really that we'd try and take as many people on the journey with us as possible, um, and that we'd have really, you know, kind of quite significant um, employee ownership. Um, and, you know, at least stand by that. I think it's a right thing to do, and I think a lot of, you know, particularly UK companies, are quite stingy um, uh, uh, around share based um, um, compensation. Uh, but it, it was a freaky nightmare. <laughs> I mean, you know, we had X, you know, it, Occasionally, ex staff that you know, hadn't left in, shall we say, particularly elegant um, scenarios, and you had to chase them down wherever they might be in the world and persuade them to sign a bit of paper. Uh, now, you know, if they hadn't have done, you know, technically you don't need to, you can drag people along, you don't really technically need everyone's signature, but a corporate buyer always wants everyone's signature, so they know there's no lawsuits going to kind of come out of the woodwork later down the line. And then you've got these, you know, ex-employees who were, you know, sales manager for nine months, and they think they've got you over a barrel, and it's not fun. 
So I don't know. It's one of the things that we would think how to structure that. And if there were, I don't know there are, there are, there are better structures, but... Well, yeah, you, there are. I mean, you can... <laughs> Fuck you. Well, they still make the same amount of money. Use a nominee structure. Anyway. Mm -hmm. um, other questions? Yes, please. Well, that was, that was terrific. Thank you. So, having mentioned it a few times, you've got, you can't leave without telling at least one anecdote about negotiating with Rupert. Um, <laughs> um, so, we did, so we, I only met him, I think, once during the actual sale process, so we didn't negotiate with him. Um, but he's, you know, he, but he did, he did sit down and, and grill us on the numbers, like, you know, really quite hard for a solid hour. Um, you know, he, he is, um, you know, he, he's a very, very, very good um, business person. Um, you know, even though we were just like one tiny division and we'd see him from time to time, um, he had a really, really good grip on our business. And its its kind of merits and its um, and its challenges, um, and yeah, very smart, very humble. Um, and he's, he's taking you through the PML rather than the strategic route. Um, obviously, both, both. I mean, his his um, you know his his kind of you know his grip. And, you know, you see this in you know, the, 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 you know, the much, much bigger deals he's done, you know, recently, which, you know, was tend to be him, you know, selling off um, uh, large bits of his um, empire. Um, you know, he, he's, his sense, like, of where the market's going, of the forces, you know, really, really very good. So, you know, he was... You know, as he always is um, in news, you know, he's behind the scenes and people are talking to him. And if he gives an injunction, you know, if he says yes or no, that's the word. <laughs> uh, if he says I won't pay more than ba bomb, you know, again, that's, 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 that's the word. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know it's, it's unusual. It's a large corporate, it's public, um, but it's still very much, um, an, you know, an entrepreneur um, um, centric uh, business uh, news. I, I can't speak for Fox because we didn't have very much to do with them, but certain news um, we, we still, you know, felt uh, very much centred um, around um, uh, uh, around Rupert. So that wasn't the anecdote we were hoping for, but it was insightful nonetheless. No, uh, no, that's yeah. good. So you getting? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, please. And a question here. I just wanted to know how the, your, the business is doing now uh, since the acquisition. Um, so, the, so, I think this, so, I mean, one of the things, so, we, you know, we were committed to stick around post-acquisition. Um, you know, you got carrots, you got sticks, but you know not everyone does. You don't have to. I mean, honestly, you know, I think probably the smartest thing that an entrepreneur can do is just be really obnoxious and difficult post-acquisition, so they buy you, accelerate all the payments, and tell you to get the hell out of there. And people do do that, and it's a very effective strategy um, in terms of enrichment. Um, we were quite clear, um, you know, that we wanted the um, acquisition to. Um, you know, not be the end of the story for Unruly, and for it to be successful as a piece of M and A, um, and so you know, 
we all worked really hard at trying to make that happen. Now, we were lucky, because of the earn-out structure, we'd managed to negotiate quite strong um, operational controls. You know, so there was quite a lot of barbara wire around the business. So you know, there was no integration um, or you know, really much meddling um, for the first um, three years. Um, so we had a lot of autonomy. Um, but we did, you know, we doubled the size of Unreal's business in the three years post-acquisition. So, you know, it, it, it did grow, uh, you know, grew in terms of staff, the technology's come on well, um, you know, and it started kind of, you know, we, you know, we knew we were already kind of pivoting from one business model to another, more programmatic, one where you needed more scale and the margins were smaller. Um, and that's still going on, and this is one of the key reasons that we sold at the particular time that we did, because we just knew that, knew that we needed more scale. Um, but that's continued um, kind of post-ag. The bigger question you know, now, of course, is now that the barbed wire's kind of been taken off because the earnout's finished, and in fact, you know, the three founders are all now you know, personally exited the business. None of us work there anymore. You know, what, what do they do next? Um, you know, they can, you know, do they continue running it as just another you know, relatively small autonomous you know, business unit, which is what they have been doing? Do they integrate it somewhere else, if so, where? Um, you know, um, you know, to what extent do they try to, you know, kind of leverage the data and the people and the technology ac across their various different, um, you know, kind of business units that they have in their, you know, federated portfolio? And, it, and it's not clear yet. I think they're still, you know, they're still figuring um, um, that out. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, we have quite clear. You know, we gave them quite clear POVs on that. Uh, you know, we thought that, you know, it really should be a, a centralised global unit doing, you know, most of their digital advertising technology and deals. Um, but news is, is it's, that's very countercultural um, from a, you know, from Rupert's standpoint, a news corp standpoint. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, he buys companies and then they, they run individually and it's really a kind of a, a relatively loose federation. And there is a little bit of centralization, but not, you know, really not very much. You know, the central team in New York is very small. It's kind of like about 20, 25 people doing law and tax. And that's it. Underneath that, everything's kind of in its own, is its own thing. So that, I think, is a particular challenge for them. I think strategically, probably what they, you know, would make sense is the thing that's most culturally challenging f for them to do um, because Rupert is quite allergic to um, centralization. We have time for one question. Who's going to ask it? Ah, please. Hi. I uh, just wanted to come back to share options. I was just wondering at what point in the business you decided to do that and how you structured it and maybe <laughs> why you picked that as opposed to nominations. Um, so we did it immediately. Um, like you know, the first the first engineer we hired um, uh, got share options, um, which meant we did it without advice and we did it very very badly. Um, and from a tax structuring perspective, oh, from every perspective, it was a real mess. Uh, it was one of the things that we had to unwind and clean up uh, before taking institutional money in twenty twelve. Mm. So at that point, we put in a kind of a quite a standard, quite a standard um, uh, options scheme across the company. Um, 
again, probably, you know, and that was good enough to clean it up, and it did clean it up. Um, probably not with enough advice, though, because, you know, the scheme that we had in place was an EMI scheme, uh, it worked very, very well for uh, UK employees. Mm. It worked considerably less well for people in other, you know, different um, tax jurisdictions. Um, but you know, we, we, you know, we had people in a hell of a lot of different jurisdictions for the size of company we were, and so you know, it's just one of those things, areas where we kind of buried our head in the sand a bit. We knew that you know, France probably wasn't going to look great, and Norway probably wasn't going to look great. I was surprised how bad the US looked actually. Um, so again, when we did exit, and all of this kind of came home to roost. Um, so I guess in a lot of cases it doesn't, because a lot of people don't exit, right? You don't have to worry about it. Um, so yeah, we had to buy out a lot of people's options, actually. In fact, we did that. I think we, off, you know, we had to do that for pretty much every jurisdiction um, out, outside of um, the UK. So again, it's very complicated. Um, but so how much investment do you put into setting these things up you know, on you know, day one or day 30? Um, Especially when you have one guy doing the phones. Well, and the, you know, <laughs> that looks like an unnecessary expense. Yeah, true, which probably means I, I was doing it, which probably means I fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. We're smack on 8 o'clock. Can we thank Scott?